We've just been hearing about how faith translates itself into action. And we're now starting a, a three-week brand new series called Faith Works. We're going to be overlooking um, the book of James, the five chapters of the book of James during that time. And there's, there's daily Bible reading notes online. You can download those all in one go or each day if you want to go to the Timberline website, they are there for you. But what we're going to do in the next few minutes, we're going to uh, overview James chapter 1 and 2. We're thinking about living it, living it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. With all my travels, uh, I've discovered recently that I've got a, quite a big problem with my passport. Um, uh, it's a British passport. I'm, uh, I'm not an American citizen. I'm a resident alien here. Nanu, Nanu. <laughs> but the problem with my passport has got uh, nothing to do with uh, its expiry date or validity. It's the photograph of me in the passport that is the problem. I know you don't have to tell me I'm no Tom Cruise, but my my photograph is utterly alarming. I look like someone straight from the FBI wanted list. And normally I warn people about my passport, but recently I forgot and I stepped up to the check-in counter and handed the gentleman my passport and he opened it, looked at my photograph and just went, whoa, that's really bad. And it is really bad, and that's really blunt. As we turn to this letter, the book of James, probably the oldest in the 27 books of the New Testament, we're going to discover blunt stuff, straightforward stuff. One commentator says that this should be called the in-your-face epistle. It's blunt, is James, especially in the fourth chapter. We'll get to that, but... In that chapter, he delivers one knockout punch after another. He addresses his listeners as killers, adulterers, and sinners who are double-minded. He, he uses the phrase, you foolish person, which literally translated means blockhead. But then, he calls them brothers and sisters. One of the most popular phrases repeatedly occurs through the book of James. So, so get this, everyone. He's really blunt, but he does that because he's part of the family. He's addressing the family, and you should be able to talk straight. And my, does he do that? There are around 50 imperatives in the 108 verses of this epistle. Time after time after time, James is saying, saying, live it. Someone has said he's like the Amos of the new covenant. All of that causes me to just stop for a moment and ask, am I willing to be confronted and challenged and 
and irritated even by God's word? Or do I just want the nice stuff? If we just want the nice stuff, this is not the place. So let's do a bit of groundwork. First of all, who's the writer? Well, most scholars believe that this writer is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And if that's so, uh, we have a fascinating letter in our hands because he would have grown up in the same family, rather obviously, as Jesus. He would have viewed Jesus through the eyes of one uh, only a sibling could see as he did. But he never mentions that in the letter. There's no name dropping here. He just introduces himself as a servant. He could have begun the letter like this. James, from the sacred womb of Mary, congenital sibling of Jesus, his brother, confidant of the Messiah. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Well, maybe he doesn't do that because he didn't always do that good as a brother. John chapter 7 shows us that his brothers initially did not believe in him. In fact, the family, Jesus' family, were worried about him. They actually staged a forced intervention to try and take him to his home. James did not become a believer until after the resurrection. So he missed that incredible three-year ministry of Jesus. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. But as soon as he became a believer, he got right involved. He is with the apostles at the day of Pentecost. He swiftly becomes a leader in the church, the leader in the church in Jerusalem after a while. Who is he writing to? He's writing to people who are in trouble. Persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and so the believers were scattered initially to Judea and Samaria, but then to wider parts of the Mediterranean. Jewish converts who are now rejected by their own Jewish people because they are Jesus' followers. And now many of them are homeless, and they're vulnerable, and there are Gentile business people who are oppressing them and dragging them into courts. They had less social standing than slaves. These people are in trouble. But James doesn't send them a sympathy card. James tells them, with their difficult circumstances, live it. Live the gospel. Live faith. And as he does that, his letter is a kind of breathless epistle, jumping from around so many different subjects, the goodness of God, the glory of Christ, sin, the second coming, judgment, temptation, suffering, our attitude to riches and to the poor, wisdom, humility, prayer, endurance. The letter begins with a call for prayerful endurance and the letter ends with a call for prayerful endurance. Now I need to tell you that not everybody likes this letter. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he didn't like it. He called it an epistle of straw, straw. Why did he do that? He felt that somehow James was undermining the great truth that the apostle Paul preached, which is justification by faith alone. 
Now is James messing that up and saying you're saved by works? No, that's not what's happening here. We are saved by faith alone, but as James teaches us, genuine faith will result in works and fruit. It's not just belief. There is no contradiction. So what can we learn as we dive into this together? I just got back 48 hours ago, so I have a newly refurbished accent. Are you getting me okay? Number one, number one, we live it together. We live it together. Church matters. Look at what James says. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And then later in chapter one, he uses this phrase that he uses repeatedly, as I've said, my dear brothers and sisters, 12 tribes. This is a term used frequently in the New Testament letting God's people know that they are now the new Israel of God. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about the family. And he paints a picture of church life and community, a fellowship of rich and poor, chapter 1, where brothers and sisters don't go in need, chapter 2, where we guard the way we speak to maintain unity, chapter 4, where if we're sick, we call for the elders of the church to pray for us, chapter 5. You see, James... He's not just writing to a bunch of scattered individuals, but he's addressing the church, the people of the big story of God. I was with my grandsons last week, and grandparents know this, and people who are not grandparents know it too. We, we grandparents become incredibly boring, don't we? I've got 11 million photos on my iPhone. You want to line up and see them afterwards. I mean, I'm obsessed my grandson Stanley said to me, Granddad, he said, what do you know about our family history? What can you tell me about the, the Lucas family? And I, he already knew some stuff. He's named after my father, Stanley. You know, I've talked about him, captured in North Africa in, the, in World War II in 1940, held as a prisoner of war for four years in a camp about seven miles from Auschwitz, taken on a death march where many died in the coldest winter in 100 years. He escaped, worked his way back across Europe. My grandfather, decorated war hero in the First World War. I, I knew about Antony, my great-grandfather. I, I knew that he was born in Cologne in Germany and traveled to England smuggled in a box. I mean, going economy class is fine, but a box... That's a bit extreme, and I, I didn't know why. So I signed up to one of those ancestry websites, and today I know so much about my story, and some of it I don't like. I discovered that Anthony, my great-grandfather, he came over in that box because he was so gut-wrenchingly poor. And he ended up in a workhouse separated from his family, an East London workhouse. I've seen a photograph of it. Think Oliver Twist without the music. And he and my great-grandmother died separately in what were rather brutally described as asylums. I found out stuff about my story. I was, I was hoping to find a distant link to royalty so I could get an invite to that wedding. Or maybe a distinguished writer in the family line. But instead I found one great-great-grandparent who served a prison sentence for poaching, which made that rabbit sandwich rather costly. And I felt sad for them, and I felt grateful for the life I've lived, but I felt strangely 
a sense of location that I can't fully describe. And knowing their stories have shrunk my worries into perspective, resized by their stories. You see, we Christians are a storied people. We're the church. And actually, our family background is kind of different. Bishop Graham Tomlin, in his book, The Provocative Church, he said, if you're a Christian, the story that tells you who you are is not the story of your parents, ancestors, ethnic group, or social class. It is instead the story of the Bible, the promise to Abraham, deliverance from slavery to Egypt and sin, and the gift of land to landless Israelites, and life to dead sinners. This story of promise, deliverance, and gift is your family history, the story that defines you. James is writing to the church. Church is not just an add-on that you can take or leave. We need to be part of the people of God. Secondly, we persevere. We persevere. Living will involve suffering. And in the presence of a great and godly man, as Father Ubold is, I almost hesitate to even say this because I can preach it, but My, he's really lived it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, James says, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Notice this. James does not say if trials come. James says whenever, when they come. You see, if you've got a pulse, you're going to suffer. And James doesn't say, and of course, if you've got enough faith, you'll get out of the trials. He doesn't say that. Rather, he's saying that there is a way to respond to our trials. I I, I struggled with this passage for years because when he says, consider it pure joy, I thought I was supposed to celebrate the trial, you know, like a minor trial. So I get a flat tire and I'm supposed to break out my tambourine. (laughs) Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I've got a flat tire. I'm going to wait here for three hours until the guy comes by and people are going to drive by me gesticulating as they do. No, he's not saying that. He's actually saying rejoice because a trial, if we respond to it rightly, and there's no guarantee we will, a trial can create a deepening of faith. We can respond with Hatred, with bitterness, with anger, resentment towards God. But James is saying, no, let perseverance work its work in you. He also talks about wisdom. And people read that and they think, why does he jump from trials to wisdom? Is he just going off on another tangent? No. I think that wisdom is often the first casualty in the time of trial. We react instead of respond. Are you like me? You, you, you panic. And for me, that means I get myself into all kinds of embarrassing situations because I make the wrong choice. I sometimes feel like the Mr. Bean of the Christian world. I'll give you an example. I've, I've shared this with you before, so just, just bear with me. A couple of years ago, um, Kay asked me to go pick up the turkey, the Christmas turkey. We, we don't We don't have turkey at Thanksgiving in England. And the reason for that is we don't have Thanksgiving. (laughs) That would be rude if we did. We'd be thanking the Lord we got rid of you, wouldn't we? And that would be wrong. (laughs) 
That's not nice. And people say, do you have the 4th of July? Yeah, but it ain't special. <laughs> we lost. So I went to get the Christmas turkey. It was all paid for. And I just pulled up to park and just run in and just run out. And, and I wasn't in a proper parking space. That was bad. And there's a parking warden roving around, seeking whom he might devour. So I just ran in, ran out with a turkey and put the turkey on the passenger seat. You notice the passenger seat. We drive on God's side of the road and the turkey is, is there and I'm just about to drive off and a seatbelt warning sign came on, warning me that I'm carrying a passenger without a seatbelt. And despite the fact that the passenger is defrosting and dead, it doesn't matter. So I, I thought, uh, here comes the parking warden. He looks eager to write me a ticket. What am I going to do? So I didn't think. Wisdom went out of the window, and I reached over, and I just put the seatbelt on the turkey. <laughs> just then a pedestrian came by asking for directions. <laughs> Popped his head in the passenger side window and said, excuse me, and saw then. <laughs> I am possibly the only man in the history of driving who carries frozen dead poultry in a seatbelt. Why did I do that? I did that because, oh my goodness, I, 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 uh. And James talking about trials, not just pressure. He's saying, no, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom that in that difficult place we might be able to respond correctly. Thirdly, Thirdly, we live with our eyes open. We live with our eyes open, managing temptation. Look at what James says here. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James is warning us about temptation. And he says, don't say that God is the author of that. And you say, hold on a minute. In, in the Lord's Prayer, don't we pray, lead us not into temptation? Is there contradiction here? No. One good translation of the Lord's Prayer statement is, deliver us from the evil one, who, of course, is the tempter. Here's the thing. Temptation is normally persistent and gradual. In his famous epic, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And James is saying, look, this is how it works. And in describing the process of temptation, he uses hunting and fishing terminology. He talks about desire or lust or craving. I've, I've, I've got to have this. And then the next step is enticement. We entertain the tempting thought. Literally, a literal translation would kind of be, the hook is now set. And then conception. We start to rationalize, hey, everyone's doing it. It won't do any harm. I can repent tomorrow. So we think. And then the final step is death. Not physical death, but the spiritual death. That comes when we let temptation have its way. 
In the last few months, I've started wearing hearing aids. And um, I'm doing that because I have tinnitus. It's constant ringing in my ears. And also, I've lost some upper frequencies as well. And I knew that things were going wrong when about half the time, Kay would talk to me, and about 50% of the time, I, I had to ask her to repeat herself. 25% of that was because I didn't actually hear her. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I was on my way here this morning, literally, and, and, and I'm driving on, on Timberline, one mile an hour below the speed limit, and I suddenly heard the voice of God. Amazing. In my ear, it said, battery low. Of course it's not God, it, it's that little woman who lives in my ears. And I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that when temptation draws near, I wish I had a voice in my ear that said, watch out, watch out, watch out. Hold steady now, hold your nerve. Because we, we think that temptation creates level ground, but it isn't, it's a slope. It's a slope. I just wonder, before I move on, are, are any of us on the brink of a disastrous decision that we'll regret, regret 20 years from now? The loss of respect from our kids, if we're married with kids, or something we so wish we could undo? Let the silence linger. Who knows? Could be the 10.51 on a Sunday morning was the moment when we saw it and changed course. Number four, we lived kindly. We lived kindly. The king of laws is love. The king of laws is love. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Strange language, this. Royal Law. Some commentators think that that means the king of laws. Others, laws fit to guide a king. What we do know is that kindness and love and forgiveness, it's all over the scriptures. Love is kind, 1 Corinthians 13. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you, Ephesians 4. Colossians 3, clothe yourself with kindness. Are we kind? A couple of weeks ago, I was in London, and it was the London Marathon, the hottest London Marathon in history. And I cried, and I wasn't running. Why did I cry? I cried because I saw strangers yelling at strangers. Come on! You can do it! And for hours, they just stood there, strangers Summoning strangers to do something awesome. It was beautiful. But sometimes our voices are raised in bitterness. And we heard so powerfully from Father Ubold. And he made it really clear, thank you, sir. This is no easy thing. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. 
I think we also need to acknowledge that often forgiveness is a journey. It's not just an instant thing. Can I speak specifically to this? I thank God for the Me Too thing that's happening where people are finding courage to speak up about historical abuses that have happened to them. But here's the danger of church. Let me talk to the ladies for a moment. Ladies, that guy told you what to do. And here's the danger. Another man, this time his name is Jeff, stands behind this. And in telling you, you've got to forgive him right now, another guy's telling you what to do. And not acknowledging that forgiveness is often a journey, a road to travel because some of us are made to feel guilty because we struggle with this. And perhaps what we should do is say, God, I've got to just be honest. I don't want to forgive that person right now, but would you, would you point me in a redemption direction? And not just for their sake. The late, great Lewis Smead said, the first person to gain from forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. And the first person injured by the refusal to forgive is the person who was wronged in the first place. Is there a situation in our lives where kindness is a casualty? Is there a direction towards forgiveness, forgiving that some of us need to take? But the last thing is this, and that is live generously in the now. Live generously in the now. James is very practical. Look at chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Another one of our 14ers. These objectives for the year. People of the story, we've talked about that. People of generosity. Here's the danger. The danger is that we can believe in giving. We can believe in living generously. We just never actually get around to doing it. And I suggest to you, based on this letter from James, that if that's the case, we really don't really believe it. James is saying, do it. In England, they're phasing out checks now. We use checks more in America currently. But if you go to a big grocery store in the UK right now, you can't write a check. They just won't take them anymore. Everything's done by card now. The nice thing about checks is that if you need to, you can write a post-dated check. Has anyone here ever written a post-dated check? And yeah, there's a few. Uh, pay Jeff Lucas $50, 20th of April, 2092. In other words, I believe it, bring you the check. But just not now. Not now. Later, later. And James is saying, no, no. If we're really believing in generosity, let's get with this. Let's, let's live it. You see, there, there are some things that are a journey, perhaps, like forgiveness. And there are other things where... James is saying, hey, just do this. Generosity, kindness, alert 
to temptation, faithful in suffering, committed to the community that is the church. Live it. In a few moments, we're going to have some prayer. But let me just say this before we do. It might be that this is your first time to Timberline. It might be you've been many times, but you've never actually given your life, live it, you've never given your life to Christ. I'm not asking you if you're a bit religious. I'm not asking you if you vaguely believe in God. I'm asking you if you know that you are now a follower of Jesus. You've made that choice. And I want you to know that within the next three minutes, there is going to be an opportunity, 10.58, on a beautiful Colorado Sunday, to make that decision. Here's what's going to happen. Every relationship has a beginning, and there's an opportunity now to start that relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to pray a prayer which you can whisper after me just in your heart as a way of saying I want to live it I want to be a follower of yours now Jesus everything's ready Christ has died on the cross to deal with our sin he's raised from the dead everything's ready it's now our decision and actually you can use this prayer as well if currently you know you're a long way from God and here you are, you find yourself here today, and it's time to come back. So are we ready? Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of being together, the inspiration that we receive, especially from Father Ubold. We pray for him, your blessing upon him and his ongoing work. Now, Lord, as we take this moment to consider our place before you, help us, we pray. So here's that prayer if you want to become a Christian or come back to God. Are you ready? Just whisper this in your heart. Lord, help. I need you. Not just to bless me, but to take charge of my life. I give my life to you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Be my friend. Be my guide. Be my king. I hand my life to you now and declare myself to be a follower of Christ by faith. Let's just keep our heads bowed. If you just prayed that prayer because you're becoming a Christian or because you're coming back to the Lord, as our heads are bowed and I'm looking around, if you've just done that, can I ask you just to slip up your hand for a moment and hold it there and then put it down? Do it now, please, if that's what you have just done. That's so wonderful around the room to see people responding. Over on the right, in the middle here, over to the left as well. Thank you. You can put your hands down. As we continue in this prayerful moment, at the end of our time today, in just a few moments, our prayer team will be at the front here. They would love to pray with you, give you some resources to help you. One other question. I wonder how many of us are going through some tough stuff right now. It's suffering time. 
You need God's strength and wisdom. I don't have to explain any further. If that's where you're at, can I ask you just to slip up your hand for a moment? I want to include you in prayer. Do that. And you can lower your hands. So Lord, we pray that you will reveal yourself wonderfully to those responding to you or coming back to you. And would you strengthen our brothers and sisters because that's what they are. Would you strengthen them in this time? And would you grant them grace and peace? For any, Lord, who wrestle on the journey to forgive, would you help and strengthen them? And may they know that you are with them in the journey. So we agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said,